This program is supported by Altus Learn. Did you know that 89% of employees say, if my employer invested in my training, I'm more likely to stay with the organization long-term? An Altus Learn Imaging Campus has the required education for imaging centers to meet annual ACR, IAC, and Joint Commission requirements for radiation and MRI safety and CT dose reduction. An imaging campus not only provides the annual required education, but also provides the imaging center techs with access to over 200 CEs, which are accepted by the ARRT. Including CEs published on the RADCAST podcast, imaging technologists can track all of their CEs through the CE wallet, and imaging center leaders can check the compliance status of each of its team members. Learn more at the bottom of RADCAST.com and click on Get a Campus. So welcome to today's episode of Turner Talks, which is hosted by RADCAST, and we have a fan favorite and one of my favorite people too, Dr. Steve Getch from San Diego. So Dr. Getch, welcome and thank you so much. You always um, have, you are such a wealth of knowledge, so you always give me, I think we carry on a conversation very well, but you always teach me so many things that um, I didn't know, and hopefully that will work for the audience. So if you want to give just a brief bio for those people who have not had the pleasure of listening to you before, um, just a brief bio about who you are and what you do and what you're doing now. Well, thanks, Cheryl. I'm much closer to the end of my career than, than the beginning. I've been a medical physicist working in radiation therapy for 30 years. Um, I got a master's degree in radiation, in radiation safety at Northwestern University and worked in that field for a while. I got a PhD in medical physics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Stayed there for a while before I started working at UCLA. For the last 25 years, I've been in San Diego working at various hospitals in the Gamma Knife Center. And I've taught extensively 16 years at San Diego State seven years at a mostly online program called John Patrick University. I just did a sort of a guest slot one month filling in at National University teaching the radiation therapy students. So that's pretty much my background. Well, like I said, you were one, I, I just find you such a joy to talk to anyway, because I think we do care. Well, I think we do complement each other well, um, but I always learn so much. So on this show today, we're gonna talk about uh, radiation safety in the sense that how does that how does your reaction as a frontline staff or physicist or dosimetrist or a physician how does your reaction to radiation and to the environment around you how does that affect patient safety and we're going to discuss some of these big um, sentinel events some of the events in which there were some fatalities from radiation therapy accidents we're also going to hit on some of the other modalities because even though not quite as catastrophic because radiation therapy accidents tend to be quite catastrophic even though not as severe there are instances of overdoses in ct or um, misadministrations of radiation and radiography or you know some errors that may occur in nuke med or some of the other modalities so we're going to hit those as well a couple other things that we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about patient safety and workplace conditions and some of that's going to come into that culture of safety and we're going to talk about that as well what a culture of safety means and how does that improve patient care and we're going to talk about some clinical situations and a lot of this came from root cause analysis from some of those big accidents so we'll talk about some of those and then we're going to look at corrective action and we'll look at some of the publications that have been done in um, light or in response to some of these accidents and to some of the, these root cause analysis where they went back and looked to see what was actually happening. 
So I'm going to let you start with a little history. And let's start with one. So I was in therapy school a long time ago, um, about the same time as this first incident that we're going to talk about. And I remember that was the big, it was a big deal. It's a big deal now, but I remember, especially as a radiation therapy student, that was the biggest thing that had happened. So let's take ourselves all the way back to the mid to late 80s to Tyler, Texas, and talk about the accident um, in Tyler, Texas with that AECL machine. So if you want to give us a little history on that, Dr. Getch. Sure. Uh, it may hurt American pride somewhat, but first time we saw it, that were ever created were in Britain. And the first cobalt sources that were ever created were in Canada. So Atomic Energy of Canada Limited, which is a crown corporation technically owned by the Queen, produced um, cobalt-60 teletherapy units. And at one point in the 1980s, they, they began to move into linear accelerators. Uh, they're always very forward-looking. I give them credit for that. There's a whole host of outstanding physicists in Canada that have always been at the forefront of knowledge. They decided to go to the next generation, which was a computer-controlled radiation therapy device. Uh, it was a good idea, but it may have been a little bit too much too soon. In that era, the computers were much, much different than they are today. You sat at a teletype with a keyboard. There was no finger pointing on the screen, no mouse, no nothing like that. So they created a program that would run their linear accelerator. It was a, the Therac 25 was, it didn't sell very widely. There were five or six in the United States. It had at least one, perhaps two photon modes and several electron modes. So it was a fairly complicated device. How much training they had, how much uh, local service, I don't really know, but they didn't really anticipate what happens when I got into the community. What happened in several different accidents in several different places from several different causes was the interaction of the human, the operator, the radiation therapist with the, with the computer was not very good. And one classic case, um, there was a long screen that the, the therapist had to fill out typing in manually each time all the different parameters for that case. And at the bottom of the screen, the woman looked up and realized she typed x-ray instead of electrons. She knew that if she hit go, she'd have to go back to that screen and type it all over again. Well, didn't have time for that. So she had a workaround that she had devised by herself, a very clever. She hit the up arrow to get up to where that x was, changed the x to e for electron mode, then hit return a whole bunch of times to get to the bottom, and then hit go. And the result was surprising. Uh, it ran for what looked like six monitor units and stopped. And it said malfunction 54, which was cryptic and they couldn't quite figure it out. Well, what had actually happened was that the carousel that rotates around and has the various X-ray targets and the scattering foils for electrons had been completely parked. It never should have been a condition where that could happen. And an unmodified beam of, of electrons, the highest current just went right out of the machine and struck the patient. The patient received several thousand rads in a few seconds to their head. He thought he'd been electrocuted. He didn't like it very much, it was painful and shocking. He got up off the couch, there was no audio or video, which was a violation. Went to the door, pounded on the door and said, let me out. So the electrician come in and figure out exactly what had gone on and the electrician couldn't find anything wrong. 
There was nothing electrically wrong. It wasn't an uh, electrical malfunction. So it happened, had to happen a second time before the physicist very quietly, carefully, in a non-threatening way, sat down with the therapist and tried to figure out exactly what happened. Once he was able to reproduce that, he said, okay, you go away. He got out of his ion chamber and was dumbfounded to see what happened. And there are several other accidents. Uh, this one was fatal and a couple other ones were fatal. And it turned out to be a variety of problems with that, that particular uh, linear accelerator. So let's jump ahead about a quarter of a century. Um, in 2010, the New York Times released an article or series of investigative um, articles. And this, it was titled Radiation Offers New Cures and Ways to Do Harm. And I encourage everybody, if you haven't read that article, to just you know Google New York Times 2010 Radiation Safety Accident and, and read that article. So they had done investigation. Um, because there had been reports um, from the state, actually, and they, um, they, the New York Times reported on two patients in, in particular, one that was being treated for head and neck, and another um, lady that was a little in southern part of New York that was being treated for breast cancer. And it's interesting that you said earlier that maybe it was too much happening too fast, too quickly, because if you think back to 2010, and if you read the articles, they referenced that IMRT had just become the new go-to thing. And actually the state had issued warnings saying, this is new, this is fast, make sure you have enough people and make sure that your people, your frontline staff, make sure you have enough therapists and make sure that those therapists are adequately trained on IMRT. So a little bit, Dr. Getch, if you don't mind about that series in um, the New York Times, like I said, they specifically speak to two patients in New York, but they also mention accidents in Florida and I think in Philadelphia in that same um, series, but they specifically talk about these two patients from New York State. So if you wanna discuss that a little bit and exactly what happened, because if IMRT was new, how is IMRT supposed to work and how did it not work? Because in the two patients that they discuss in the, in the New York Times, it was a fatal accident to both of them. I think it started out, as you say, with a report from New York State. They had gathered a bunch of reports on uh, incidents that took place in radiation therapy and New York Times saw that report and they're a major paper with huge resources. So they assigned some reporters. I think Christina Rabella was the one that started investigating. Turns out she lives near me and I've known her for 10 years now. She started digging into this and was not shy. She called up some of the patients. She called up the patient who was pictured on the front page of the New York Times in the first article. It looked a little bit odd. He's obviously in enormous distress and has his both of his feet in buckets. I couldn't quite figure that out. Well, that was sand from his favorite beach. He was so sick he was never going to go back to that beach. So that's the closest thing they could do to comfort him. I think they got the idea for this, this report. They pitched the idea, went to Walt Bogdanich, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. And it ended up on the front page above the fold, as they said. And I don't think they really realized at that point how far this was going to go because it went on for several months with 10 front page articles, one of the largest front page series they've ever done. It just kept going and going. This particular case was tragic. A guy with head and neck cancer, which is very distressing, but at least in 
uh, modern terms, very curable, very treatable. And a lot of things, once they investigated, probably pressure to, to move very quickly was one of the problems. They're doing very advanced therapy, intensity modulated radiation therapy. Not only were they doing, doing this therapy uh, to initiate the treatment, but then they suddenly decided to do a boost of radiation therapy, cone down, make it smaller and more intense field. And now it turns out what happened was while the physicist himself was doing the planning, something happened, the computer crashed. Okay, this happens, this kind of thing can lead to unexpected results. Military has had this problem with some of their equipment. He rebooted the computer, got back into it, and didn't realize under these circumstances, the MLCs were parked, they were wide open. Okay, that's a problem, he didn't see it, he didn't pick it up. How he managed to finish the plan with, with what turned out to be horrific radiation distributions, I don't know. Then again, it was, Fast, fast, fast. The plan went to the treatment machine. The two or three fractions were administered basically with, with the field wide open, the entire head and neck, uh, even, an, even an excessive dose because there was, no, there was no coning down from the MLCs. About the, about the time of the third fraction, the physicist got a measurement, suddenly realized, oh no. Um, at that point, it was too late. You can't take out radiation dose. He was doomed and fairly quickly they knew it. it. Took several months for him to pass away. There are other articles that mention similar instances where patients realized that they had been given a fatal dose and there's nothing that could be done for them. So that started the series that it continued on in radiation therapy. And even the, the last one was on overdoses for CT scans, particularly for infants. So there's a whole long series there. And like I said, I encourage um, people to, to look that up because it's an, those are incredible articles and really makes you think about things. And so real quick for our folks that aren't radiation therapists, since we talked about IMRT and MLC, I don't want people to get lost in acronyms there. So like you said, IMRT is intensity modulated radiation therapy. And that means that it's not the same dose all the time. It means it's not the same um, strength of dose, so to speak, all the time. And then MLCs, um, because tumors don't, norm, cancer doesn't grow in squares and the mm -hmm. light field comes out in square, just like traditional radiography, MLCs add shape. So it's called multi-leaf collimators and they you know, come in at different angles or different pieces so that they can shape around that tumor. And so what you're saying is the MLCs were parked out which means it was left in a square or a rectangle and was hitting critical organs. And in his case, um, because he was being treated for head and neck, that most critical of organs was the spinal cord. And so, you know, like you said, when they did the boost on that, they kind of um, blew right through there, actually. And so we talked about, at the very beginning, we talked about some root causes to some of these things. And you mentioned in the Tyler, Texas, in that AECL accident, that um, the therapist didn't have time to go back and re-enter all that information. Plus she had kind of devised her own workaround, so to say. Um, if you look back on the New York Times articles, they talk about some of the same types of events. Now remember, these are a quarter century apart. Technology has changed, the pace has changed, um, but some things stay the same. 
therapists were so busy, it seems, that they even said on the, the instance with the gentleman with head and neck cancer that if they had looked at the, and the New York Times says, if they had only looked at the, at the screen, you know, because we have audio and visual on all of our patients. Um, but if you've ever seen a therapist workstation, there are dozens of screens. And it goes on to say that they weren't looking at the screen that said the MLCs were parked. They were actually watching the patient because he had that mask on and they were afraid that he may be sick underneath that mask. So they were actually watching the patient, not watching the machine. And it's interesting that the state of New York had come out and said that staffing levels should be evaluated carefully. This was at the very beginning of IMRT. Not that that's changed any at all. It was just such a change from what we had traditionally done with static fields, um, you know, with four field box fields kind of things. So we're, we're looking back on some staffing issues and some busyness in the department and these trends continue. I'm gonna jump ahead and I'm gonna jump across the, the world. In 2014 was a radiation therapy accident in Auckland, New Zealand, where a patient who was being treated for bone mets to his spine from prostate cancer, received about three times the dose that he was supposed to receive. He subsequently passed away as well. However, that has not been attributed solely to the radiation overdose because he did have stage four terminal cancer. So um, when the government of New Zealand looked back on that accident, they attributed it to stress, stress in the department, chaos. Um, under-trained or maybe not as well-trained as could be. So, you know, there was some staffing who had not been in the field as long, be that from dosimetry physics or therapist. And so there was just a level of training that was not as fully competent as it can be. So um, a good overview of, of three um, big accidents. And like I said, they span, you know, a quarter of a century there. So since you mentioned the CT in the um, New York Times article, you said that was the last last um, report in that series. You mentioned overdoses in CT. Um, I'm going to reference an article in 2009 where the Pennsylvania Patient Safety Authority, they, they reported on 652 accidents or misadministrations or patient errors in radiography. So this is this is an x-ray. And 50% of the time that was the wrong procedure or test. And about 30% of the time it was the wrong patient. And another 15% of the time it was the wrong side. So you've either got the wrong procedure being performed or on the wrong patient or you pick the wrong side. So you've got the wrong procedure, wrong patient, and wrong side, and that almost accounts for the 100%. So let's talk a little bit about errors in radiography, whether they be this this type on the wrong patient or in an overdose of CT. And because I know this is something we've talked about before, how everybody gets a CT now, they just you know pass those things out. So how do these overdoses in radiography work? Well, there's, there's, there's two generic ways this can happen. One, as you say, is specific for a particular patient. They get the wrong examination, wrong body part, wrong dose. Uh, New York Times reported, um, this is pretty much gone now, they would give a full adult dose to an infant, and it was much more radiation than was needed to form an image. You've got great images. Just let the ACR forming something called image gently, and they made a specific point of children are not just small adults, they're children, and they should be dealt with very differently. There was another series of, of events that happened just north of me at one of the 
nation's most distinguished hospital, Cedars-Sinai, hospital of the movie stars and the wealthy in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, they had a CT scanner that was completely miscalibrated. Um, once all the lawsuits settled, it was never really revealed exactly what went on, but we can sort of guess. One particular study, which suggests to me it was one particular program on the console that the technologist would, would activate, was for CT perfusion, for looking at the brain for a possibility of a stroke. In that case, it turned out that the dose was about eight times what it should have been. These CT scanners are so powerful. Back in the 1990s in a hospital in Pasadena, Dr. Chris Rose actually on at least one patient used a CT scanner to treat a brain tumor. You oh, can wow. literally treat a tumor. So the dose is amazing. These people received several gray. And what the primary effect was, since it was 120, 140 kilovolts was they got a stripe around their head where all the hair fell out, like they'd been scalped very selectively in a band that went around their head. And there were a little over 200 such people that had this. It also turned up in single events in other states like Alabama and other parts of the country. But the one scanner at, at Cedars-Sinai was clearly a rogue scanner. It took a lot of investigation to find out what happened. Gigantic lawsuit settled out of court. All the patients presumably got a fair amount of money and all of them signed a non-disclosure. So we still don't know exactly what happened. But what led to reform was several of my friends, uh, Chris Cagnet at UCLA was one, others up at UC Davis. They voluntarily went to the state of California and helped them understand what's at, what's at play with these scanners and help them figure out that you can very easily measure the radiation dose from a CT scanner in real time as it's going in. And California almost immediately passed a state law requiring the radiation dose to be measured and reported for every patient every time you get a CT scan. And that's been in effect ever since then. And the radiologist must dictate it in his or her notes, no deniability. Mm -hmm. This has been locked in. Other states considered it. I don't know if anybody else did it. The manufacturers have got it all figured out. They could implement it. Any hospital in America could pick it up if they want to. But for CT scanners especially, that's one that's very, very powerful. The only other one that's really dangerous is fluoroscopy. That's another mm -hmm. series of, of overdoses that was also reported in the New York Times series. So I was going to say, um, because you're speaking on, you know, we've talked about kind of some different things, some kind of software issues, some hardware issues, like you said, some calibration issues to where people didn't really even know what they were working with. If you look at, once again, we'll go back to some of these root causes. And if you look to the Pennsylvania article that or the Pennsylvania report that I referenced, um, one of their one of their report of findings or a, a summation of their report of findings said that the, these errors could be attributed to a shortage of fully prepared people, a shortage of experienced people. And we talked about that. Maybe they're just weren't just didn't have all the skills they needed. A shortage of space in which to create calm environment in which to work. And we talked about that. Things are getting faster. There's getting faster and busier and more patients and less resources. Um, a shortage of supplies, a shortage of dollars for upgrade, 
equipment and additional staff. And I'd like to add to that a shortage of dollars for training because you know you talked about the AECL machine, we talked about IMRT, now you've talked about CT. And at what point were all of those therapists or techs, technologists, be it CT or radiography, you talked about fluoro, we all have, we all have credentials, we all have to have licensure um, depending on our states, but are we fully trained on the equipment that we're working on? And so I think this is a point that's been made um, repeatedly in the radiation therapy spectrum, but I wonder about in some of the other modalities, do we believe that vendor training is adequate? Do we believe that being trained once on something is adequate? And what personal responsibility or professional responsibility is it for us to make sure that we uphold these high standards? Because like I said, so many of these root causes go back to the working conditions or go back to the chaos or go back to the busy or go back to understaffed. And at, you know, at what point do we take some responsibility for some of that stuff? So. Those are some questions that we can, you know, pose out there. Um, MRI accidents are a little different, um, mainly because most of those have to deal with compatibility. So even though MRI accidents happen, they don't happen very often or not as often maybe as some of the others. And those have to do more with um, a, a patient's compatibility with even having an, having an MRI performed. So I'll let you talk about that just a little bit um, because MRI safety is so different, but we want to make sure that we don't leave those folks out. Well, there's two primarily primary types of hazard from MRI. It's MRI is, is conducted in a very, very powerful magnetic field. You can see demonstrations of someone walking into a room with a chain and then holding the chain up and the chain will be pulled towards the machine. Years ago, I heard about a police officer that walked into an MRI scanner, probably with a prisoner who was escorting, and the MRI scanner disarmed him, grabbed a pistol, and took it out of his pocket, and pulled it in the, mag in the magnet. I don't know if he was afraid he was gonna shoot him next, but it can do that kind of thing. So you have two separate hazards. One is sort of the missile hazard, which is real. This is not an urban myth. People have died because someone brought into a room something that was not compatible. It was flung into the middle of the magnet, collided with the patient and killed them. Uh, I know of a case where a patient was wheeled into a, a, a high three Tesla unit on a motorized cart that was not MRI compatible. When it got close enough, the MRI scanner simply grabbed the cart with the patient in it and hurled the whole thing into the machine, patient at all patient ended up suing and being settled for millions of dollars and had to go undergo emergency surgery. So that's one problem. The other problem is what's inside your body. How does the machine interact with whatever you have? There are so many types of implanted devices now, insulin pumps, pacemakers, uh, brain stimulators. When I, when I talk to the MRI technologist, they show me a list and it goes on for pages and pages and pages of all the things that you should screen the patient for. I literally don't know how they do it. The final step is they take a hand wand magnet, go over the patient head to foot, and look for something that's magnetic. So the other last thing is only a minor thing, but I talked about this to my students in diagnostic imaging last month. Um, anything that you have in your body that's not magnetic, meaning that it would be picked up by a magnet, 
If it's metal, it might be paramagnetic or diamagnetic, meaning that it interferes with the magnetic field. Fillings, old types of fillings with the old amalgam, they can create a, a void. On the MRI scan, you see a giant hole where that tooth was. That could cause problems. I've heard of makeup causing problems. Um, I've even heard reports of women with a metal bra strap it caused interference in a head scan. So it's a it's a subtle, tricky business. That's something that I think requires a lot of training. And I have a little bit of concern about MRI scanners being built into a linear accelerator. I suspect that the people that are asked to operate it will be the radiation therapists with very minimal training. Right. And I'm not really sure that's appropriate. Well, and that speaks to, I'm glad you brought that up, that speaks to um, this, this training or, you, you know, what is good enough? Do you just accept the minimal minimal standards, the minimally acceptable standards? Or like you said, they're just minimally trained in MRI. Um, so they, they can't fully understand all the aspects of everything that they need to know. And so I think that goes back to the to that training and why is there the gap there you know is are people too busy is there not are funds being cut um are the budgets not set appropriately do does admin believe this won't really happen um so like i said once again some questions to ponder so we'll hit on new med just a little bit and then because there's a point i want to bring up and then i want to move into um, how do we get in these situations? How do we get to a situation? Because as therapists, as physicists, as dosimetrists, as x-ray techs, um, our primary goal is to provide safe patient care. And we all know how radiation works. So how do we get to the point that I think one, I, I know one of my presentations, um, one of my research articles says, and I think I've seen it in one of your presentations, that as frontline staff, we're kind of the last person between that patient and an error. So if we know all of this stuff, how do we get to that point? So I, I say all of that to bring up, um, there was a NUCMED study done in Scotland, I believe, and they had um, you know, listed out all the errors. One of the stats they had was that 80% of the errors in nuclear medicine can be attributed to, attributed to either process failure or human failure. And so that's 80%. And I know further in that article, they mention that nuclear medicine technologists are interrupted something like five to eight times an hour. So you're looking at like, you know, like every six, seven, eight minutes that while you're supposed to be engaged in patient care, you're being interrupted, interrupted in the hallway. And we know what a therapy department looks like. We know what an x-ray department looks like. So those stats are not, even though those are NUCMED stats, we can relate those to any of our modalities. So 80%, that's what they said, 80% were attributed, goodness gracious, attributed to process failure or human failure. So how, back to my original question, how do we get to this point? We all know how radiation works. We all know we're supposed to be safe. We all know we're supposed to be taking care of our patients. How do we get to the point that an error occurs? Well, there's a lot of different ways. Um, I went to a talk at an entire meeting at uh, Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit a few years ago. And one of the huge hospitals in Michigan, it might've been University of Michigan, looked at this intensity modulated radiation therapy where it's very advanced, very computer controlled, very, very busy, moves so quickly that human eyes can't follow it second by second. You have to rely on the process. But as they went through the, the steps from a patient coming into the department 
being simulated to being planned, getting to the patient, getting onto the couch, being treated. They identified something like 25 different handoffs, it went from one person to another. And anytime there isn't full and complete communication from one to another, that's a real problem. Uh, what else happens? You need to have a plan approved. Well, Dr. Smith isn't there. He's on vacation or he's at a conference. So Dr. Jones, who doesn't know the patient, comes in, quickly reviews the patient, tries to catch up, and then approves it because you, you know, you've got to keep on moving. That's, that's another real problem there. Or two therapists work together, typically in a department, they might work together at the same device for a month, and they'll rotate somewhere else. One day, one of them is sick. Someone comes in and fills in, so you have two people there, but doesn't know any of those patients. They're starting from scratch. They don't know, okay, in this particular patient, there's a shift, and we gotta do it this way. Just all these failures of communication. It's very, very hard to get it all exactly correct and exactly documented and follow it correctly. And as you're talking about all the stress that happens, I, I went into a talk one day at 8 p.m. A biomedical engineer was talking. I should pay more attention to them because they're very interesting. He was talking about an, an ICU. Um, there are new models now where every patient is in their own room and it's all electronically monitored from a central desk. The old view where my poor father had to go from time to time. There was one nursing station in the middle and it's like hubs of a spoke. There's 10 or 12 people in behind various curtains uh, all around the corner. And okay, looks like I'm going to stop my camera. He said it was a horrible place to be. There were alarms going off all night long, people running, they're calling the code, they're doing this, they're doing that. Biomedical engineers say that people get alarm fatigue. In an average ICU, you might have 50 to 100 alarms going off all the time. They do what anybody would do, they ignore them. They learn exactly what to do, which ones they have to respond to. Uh, I've heard aircraft engineers say the same thing, particularly at Boeing, where they study this intensively. They look at what's going on in the cockpit and they try to minimize what the pilots are being bombarded with. One of them said, yeah, if there's a minor fire in the engine and the fire suppressor goes off and takes care of it, that might not even let the pilot know, which I thought was pretty extreme. So it's a, it's a fine line. Everybody thinks whatever they're doing is important. Oh, if this goes wrong, I gotta do this. But human beings only process so much information at one time. And when you get overloaded, mistakes happen. There's, there's so many things that we could talk about right now. Um, let me go through these questions that you have, because I think what this is going to do is lead us into some of the professional response. And we can talk about some of those publications and then maybe some of the studies done by the, the task groups by the AAPM. Before we get into, I want to wrap this day up, this talk up with safety culture, because we all are in a situation to where we need to ensure that we're working in a safe culture. And how do we get there if that's not the culture of the department? So let, let's run through these questions real quick. Um, you posed in one of your presentations, how safe is safe? How safe is safe? And you said, what about accidents? I always ask myself when I read an accident report, could I have let that happen? Would I have prevented that from happening? So if you've got somebody on the front line 
Um, like I said, in, even in some of my own research, one of my participants said, I know the stress of carrying the weight that they are the last person standing between that machine and that patient, between that radiation and that patient. They're the last person that can prevent an error. So to your questions, if something happens, can you reflect and say, could I have let that happen? Or how would have I prevented that from happening? So what, what would you say to frontline staff who find themselves in these situations, but how do they reflect and answer those questions? Well, I think the huddle. Everybody gets around in a circle and talks about what's going on. Um, a surgeon wrote a book manifesto and he said he's a busy surgeon at Mass General, which has thousands of employees. He comes into an operating room. The first thing he does is stop and have everybody in the room introduce themselves, say who they are, and what, it, what it is they do for a living. And then he worries about one hour into a three-hour operation, someone goes on a break, somebody new comes in and has no idea what's going on. So you literally have to communicate with each other. The most effective signs I ever saw when I was at UCLA, our chief therapist put it up right on the council and it just said, think. And I think that's critical. Um, I, I have specialized for 25 years in doing the kind of radiation therapy that's done on a single intervention, either with a linear accelerator or a gamma knife. One dose, that's it, no going back, no repeat, no mid-course correction. When you do these one or two or three or five course treatments, you have to be exceedingly careful. To some, to some hospitals, you're literally crossing the boundary from radiation therapy to surgery. The surgeons now all over America have a time out. They stop, we have two of them in the intraoperative radiation therapy I work on. One is for the patient right side, what's the operation, what's the procedure, is a patient allergic to anything? The second one is the radiation therapy. What size collimator, what energy we're gonna use, is there, a, is there a bolus? Go through that checklist also. You know, that, it's not really, not really a checklist, it's a timeout that's guided by a checklist. So I think those are important things to consider. Um, what do you do? How do you make sure that every day you're on your A game? It's interesting that you mentioned, and I'm going to go, I'm going down a tiny rabbit trail. We won't stay there very long, but I do want to bring it up. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned that you work like on Gamma Knife, where you have one, one chance, one treatment, one, you know, there are huge doses, enormous doses of radiation given in one time. Let's tiny just a little bit on this rabbit trail to talk about flash therapy. It, it seems um, very futuristic. I know it's being done right now. Um, the definition for folks who don't know what flash therapy is, is high doses of radiation given over seconds, not, not over courses of time. Um, so it's given over seconds. So no room for error right there. What is the confidence level in that? Um, I know I would want, as a therapist, would want to ensure incredible amounts of support and training before I would even feel confident doing that. So what's the confidence, explain a little bit about flash therapy because I'm sure you can do a far better job than I can. I'm a little tiny bit about flash therapy just for the folks that have no idea what it is. And then what's the confidence level um, 
both software hardware wise and then with some of these other um, human error type things. Well, flash therapy is sort of a discovery that happened about 25 years ago and no one paid any attention to it for a long time. It was way ahead of what people could do. People at uh, Brookhaven National Laboratory were trying to simulate what happens with a cosmic ray coming from outer space. Cosmic rays created somewhere in the galaxy have unthinkable energies, vastly beyond anything that you would have in a radiation therapy department and how they interact with a, with a cell. Well, they tried to simulate this at, uh, at this national laboratory with high energy protons. And oh, by the way, when they started simulating it with, with cell cultures, they saw something quite interesting. And that is that it seemed to have an effect on the tumor that they were expecting, but not so much the, the concomitant uh, damaging radiation than normal tissue. Now that it's been studied extensively on cell cultures and some tiny animals like mice and rabbits, that's about the only size field they can have, they've begun to discover that this has about a 70, up to a 70% bonus and suppression of side effects. Basically, it's delivered at immense doses, a thousand to 10,000 times as much what we're in, what we would typically do. In other words, a treatment that typically now takes one and a half minutes might take one tenth of one second, <laughs> literally in between heartbeats. So you have to really think about things carefully. It's only been done once that I know of, electron beams, a patient with an external tumor, Electrons are very easy to do. Protons and photons are much, much, much harder. Been done once on a visible tumor. That's sort of the easy way to start out. How do we get to the next level? And people are talking about that. Stanford has a project called Phaser, which is now being commercialized. A friend of mine is CEO of the company that's building it. They have tens of millions of dollars of a big shop in Palo Alto. They're bending metal and trying to figure this out. It's going to be very, very, very hard. Right? What they're looking at is to put 16 Linux in a ring and fire them all simultaneously at the patient in, again, a fraction of a second. Unfortunately, there's a national workshop scheduled, well, on April Fool's Day of this year, and the fool was us that it was canceled. I'm not even sure it's going to be made virtual. It will repeat itself in March here in San Diego, where I live. So there will be a national workshop on this. Enormous number of people are looking at it. It's like the holy grail. If you can treat a patient and have very, very minimal side effects to the normal tissue, well, that's fantastic. When people would kill for 5%, this is 70%. It basically happens so fast that the chemistry can't keep up with the physics. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. So yeah, it's going to lead to whole new avenues of treatment and whole new sets of worries. I agree. Um, let's look at some of the professional response to some of these errors. And so in radiation therapy, we know that ASTRO came out with um, in 2012, and then they updated in 2019 a report called Safety is No Accident. Um, in that they really looked at these timeouts, like you mentioned timeouts and huddles. They also looked at staffing models. 
also the task group 100 of the AAPM. So all those physicists got together and looked at, they specifically looked at IMRT and all the different places that an error could occur. Like you were talking about all the different handoffs and, and those types of things. Um, so this professional response, when they've dug into the errors, they come back with reports that kind of say the same thing that we've been saying here, um, staffing levels, um, level of training, level of, um, I guess, patient pro uh, throughput, productivity, how many patients, how much staff. And I know there's a disconnect there sometimes on what frontline staff, maybe even what physicians, maybe even what, um, you know, managers and directors see the need for frontline staff in these environments to where admin or the financial suite may see it a little differently. So what can you say about, since, since we all kind of seem to come to the same conclusion and professionally physicians and astrophysicists have spoken out with somewhat of the same findings, what can you say about these environments and the need to protect patient safety? How do you say to someone on the frontline staff who already knows what they should be doing but may not be supported even though it's, it's been published as such? Well, it kind of goes back to when I first uh, got to UCLA in 1990. It was actually a year later, 1991, uh, the American College of Radiology, APM, and some other groups published something that came to be known as the Blue Book. It actually had a more formal title, but what it really was was uh, sort of a guideline to what departments should have, how many physicists you should have, how many therapists, how many block cutters in those days when we were cutting cerebin blocks. <clears throat> Unfortunately, uh, I know from the publication business, I'm chairman of a little uh, nonprofit called Medical Physics Publishing Corporation. By the time you print something, it's obsolete. So there was a tremendous amount of energy put into creating a successor to that. How do we update to take into account everything that had happened since then? The kicker for the, for the uh, New York Times series was radiation boom, which is deliberate play on words. We're in a new era where things are going very, very fast. And of course, radiation boom, atomic bomb, everybody sort of got that metaphor. But by the time this report, this new report came out, um, it had morphed from not just a guideline on staff to a guideline on safety. And it was, it was titled, Safety is No Accident. So it looked at all the different procedures. There was actually a, a sort of a, an on-paper spreadsheet, which many people put into a literal Excel spreadsheet, kind of a checklist. If you've got, you've got X number of linear accelerators, you, you're doing IMRT, you're doing... Um, intraoperative radiation therapy, doing gamma knife, you're doing all this stuff, ding, 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 how many patients per year? If you turn the crank, it tells you how many dosimetrists, how many physicists you need. And every department I know that looked at that came up short, like, wow, we need a lot more people. So part of what this was supposed to be was a consensus statement. There are like 11 different organizations that did it, that you could take to management and say, look, I'm not feather bedding, I'm not lazy. This is the national recommendation for how many people we should have. If we don't have this many people, they're all gonna be overworked, they're gonna be stressed, and it's gonna to lead to a deterioration in safety. So that's, that was part of the goal of this idea. I would say it's, it's now obsolete again, it's time to update it one more time. 
I would agree with you. Um, and that adequate staffing and looking at those models and being able to present those models is all part of building a safety culture. So what does it mean to have a robust safety culture in your department? Now we could talk about this as far as, you know, spread out all over healthcare because the to arrow is human report came out and that talked about, you know, readmits and medication overdoses and those kinds of things. So we won't go into all that. It's all out there. So this isn't just a radiation therapy. This isn't just a radiography. This isn't just a radiation sciences issue. This is an issue. But specifically for us, how do we build a, or how do we help to build a robust culture of safety? Because a lot of some of that responsibility is personal. Some of that responsibility we need to take for ourselves as we're on the front line. So what is this whole uh, notion of culture or safety culture and how do what does it look like and how do we get there? I think what happened at the national level between ASTRO and APM and other organizations, we looked at problems pointed out by this New York Times series and other things going back about 10 years and said, we're not doing very well. We've got to be able to do better. Who, who's doing a good job? Well, about that point, it began to come to our attention that the airline industries in America had done a very, very good job of improving safety. Uh, they had problems go back 20 years ago. Plane would crash. FAA would send investigators. They'd try to figure out why it crashed. Then they'd go back home and sit and wait for the next crash. Someone said, well, this is not very proactive. This is reactive. What do we do to get ahead of this? How do we find a problem before it causes a fatal air crash? And what they had to do was build bridges between the pilots and the airlines and the federal government. And basically, they started from the idea of a safety culture and a no-fault culture. California, for years, have had no-fault divorces. You don't have to allege your spouse cheated. They just forget it. You just divvy up the, the goods and the kids, and you go on your way. Well, this literally happened in the airline industry, and it was a complete, total revolution. If two planes literally have a near miss, one comes close to another one, the old days, both pilots would dummy up. If they didn't see it on the radar on the ground, they'd shut their mouth because if they reported, they would be suspended without pay. They didn't want that. Now they, they can say it. Uh, a few years ago, we had the, the chief of safety for Delta Airlines, largest airline in the world, gave a keynote address at Astro. And he'd been at our meetings and walked around and looked at it. And we'd already been working on this very hard. It was very complimentary. He said, oh, by the way, I got a little story for you. I can just now tell you this, it just came out. I remember two years ago, an airplane landed at one of the airports in New York in the winter and it sort of skidded and skidded and skidded. It went down the runway practically sideways, ended up with a nose pointing out in the Gulf, almost went in the water, had to emergency evacuate the passengers. Okay, and now I have the full results I can reveal. The FAA has announced that here's what happened. It was pilot error. Okay, they came in too hot, too fast, and other planes had landed just fine. They over-revved their engines. They reversed them backwards and did that way beyond where it was recommended and lost control of the airplane. It started fishtailing, out of control. And he said, number one, the pilots cooperated with this totally. They didn't cover up anything. They did everything. And they are flying for Delta today. And I was like, wow, you guys mean it. So, Nancy Levison, my friend at MIT, she is the 
the mistress of disaster. She's been on the two space shuttle investigations. She was on the Deepwater Horizons Presidential Commission. She says that blame is not an engineering concept. Blame doesn't help anybody. No one is gonna push the button and cause someone to be injured or killed deliberately, unless they're a psychopath. They didn't know something. The entire culture failed to convey to that point what was wrong when the patient or when the therapist pushed the button. It wasn't their fault. Something had already gone badly wrong. And now let's go back and pull it apart and figure out what it is. So that's the no-fault culture. One of the best illustrations of this, strangely enough, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, particularly things like nuclear reactors, they have an entire series of bulletins on safety culture. They say things that you would never expect from an agency like that, like question authority. That sounds like a 60s hippie, but you should be able to speak up without fear of retaliation. You should be able to say whatever you need to, bring problems to manage without feeling like you're gonna be punished for it. That's the whole point. If you can get into that situation, you're doing better. I know departments that do exceedingly well at it, and I know departments right now that are very bad at it. Interestingly that you brought that up, and we'll close out with this because I think it's a very important place to end, um, is about this no fault, no blame, um, to learn something from error reporting. And I know there was a study done that asked um, radiation therapists and managers and that about these reporting systems, and we don't have to get into all the reporting systems, but they asked about reporting errors, even near misses or small errors or errors that may not have been picked up on. And 50% of the therapists, 50% of the group in a therapy department said they wouldn't report it at all because they feared for losing their jobs. The other 50% said they would use it only if there was no retaliation. So what is the importance of reporting these events and then how what education is needed to help both sides to help the side accept um, the no fault stance and then to help the frontline staff feel safe in that environment so what's the importance of reporting and how do we come together to make sure that we um, have that culture of safety so that people feel safe to report these events well, i think the whole point of reporting, well, accidents reveal themselves. Now you have to go back and dissect what happened. There's a whole field called root cause analysis. But what if something almost happens? There's a learning point there. Uh, Astro and APM invested millions of dollars in something called the Radiation Oncology Incident Learning System, abbreviated ROYALS. It's now been out five years. They've accumulated 12,000 incidents from their 500 member institutions. You can go and re review much of this online. But what they do is go and look at it and analyze it. Where was the mistake made? Was it made in dosimetry? Was it made on the treatment machine? Was it made in the prescription? Was there a miscommunication between the physician and the dosimetrist, between the dosimetrist and the therapist? Where was the error caught? Was it caught on chart review? Was it caught before the patient was treated on the machine? By dissecting all this, you can learn what the weak spots might be. What Task Group 100 for APM tried to do, instead of just updating the old prescriptive formulas, okay, Steve, you're the radiation physicist here, 
every week you do this, every month you do this, every year you do this. We spend immense amount of times measuring stuff that never actually changes. Instead, why don't you look at a really tricky procedure like interoperative radiation therapy and ask yourself, get a committee and ask yourself, where could this go wrong? What's the weak spots? How do we fix it? How do we fix things before things go bad? Uh, the automobile industry has been doing this for decades. They kind of pioneered this after World War II. How do you prevent an accident from happening? How do you prevent bad quality control so people don't want to buy your cars anymore? Because that's also a disaster from the point of view of the manufacturer. And I think that's that's really the culture we've got to enable us. How do you be prospective and not reactive? Well, and I appreciate that. And I think that was a good way to summarize kind of, you know, what we've talked about today. One last thing I want to finish up with is this has been a lot of information, a lot of great information, but a lot of information. And it may surprise some people, actually. Some of those numbers may surprise some people. The fact that this actually happens as often as it does may surprise some people. But I think the one thing that you said, and you said that it was um, a sign in, in the department in California that said, think. And I think, I think that if we all did, despite timeouts, despite huddles, all these other safety measures that are in place, if on a personal level, on a professional level, if you take the responsibility to think about what you're doing, about the environment you're in, about that button you're about to push, about that dose, I think if we think, slow down a little bit and think, then we might could see a change in some of these numbers. I agree. I think you need to do that yourself. I think you need supportive management. Um, I literally have a friend who left a very toxic environment at a, a distinguished radiation therapy facility recently just because she just couldn't take it anymore. Mm -hmm. If you can't change, like the like the prayer of the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, you have to know when you, you can't change it. And if you can't accept it, then you have to change the paradigm, go somewhere else. We need the help and active system of management, especially the physicians involved. Well, I appreciate all of this. This has been a great talk. Um, I encourage people to go look up not only the New York Times article, uh, maybe to study a little bit about how the aviation industry has changed some things. Also look at that safety is no accident report if you want to see that. Um, TG100 may be a little deep for some folks, but you know somebody may want it. Somebody may want to go out there and give it a give it a look and see what all it has to say. So I encourage people to really think about patient safety. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully we won't be giving this same talk another quarter century from now. So I appreciate it a bunch, Dr. Getch. Well, thank you for having me. Well, you have a great day.